0: Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. Singer-songwriter Gautier's best-known song, the Grammy-winning Somebody That I Used to Know, is about the pain of being treated as an inconsequential thing of the past. When it comes to music, Gauthier, whose real name is Wally DeBacker, has great respect for things of the past. Specifically, he has a passion for old electronic instruments and is determined to show that they matter. He spent several years searching for and then restoring an ondioline, an early version of a synthesizer from the 1940s. He's a fan of the century-old theremin, a haunting instrument played by waving your hand through an electromagnetic field. His most recent project, with instrument designer Mike Buffington, was building from scratch a Rhythmicon, an electronic drum machine from the 1930s. DeBacker and Buffington recently debuted their Rhythmicon in a performance by the Tufts Electronic Music Ensemble. It was the world premiere of a concerto written specifically for the Rhythmicon back in 1931. Here's a brief example of what a Rhythmicon sounds like. On the day of the concert, Tufts undergraduate Max Kratzok spoke with DeBacker and Buffington about these forgotten instruments and why they should be more than just footnotes to music history. Let's listen in.
1: Wally DeBacker and Mike Buffington, thank you guys so much for being here at Tufts. How are you guys doing today? Great.
2: Yeah, Yeah. doing well.
1: Looking forward to the concert later.
2: A little nervous, but yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be great. We just went into the performance hall and uh, you know, it's, very, it's very resonant, but in a really nice, controlled way. So yeah. it's going to be exciting to hear what this Rhythmicon and the ensemble sounds like in that space.
1: Yeah, I reckon it should be a very, very unique experience. So could you guys tell me maybe a little bit more about why the world needed a Rhythmicon and really at the bass level, how it does what it does?
3: So the Rhythmicon is arguably the first drum machine in the world. It doesn't really sound like any other drum machine that's been invented since, but arguably the first you know, piece of machinery that allows rhythms to be generated that aren't sort of, I guess, physically, directly enacted by a human being's movements. The principle behind the Rhythmicon was arrived at by Henry Cowell, and he expounded the ideas he had pretty extensively in a book called New Musical Resources, and was then looking for somebody to to turn that theory into a practical instrument and... He found, you know, the most well-regarded and brilliant engineer in New York at the time, the Russian physicist Leon Theremin. Uh, And then Theremin added his brilliance to... um, It's a brilliant concept in the first place. Cowell's theories basically are that there's this very fundamental connection between rhythm and harmony, that there are these polyrhythmic relationships between rhythm that align with the harmonic series. And so the instrument, you know, the rhythmicon, allows you to explore those relationships So you have a fundamental rhythm at a certain pitch. Rhythm two is the next note in the harmonic series, is an octave up from that and is twice as many beats. The next note, number three, is three beats to every one, and that's another fifth up from there and then it goes up in the harmonic series from there, a fourth up, a third up and so on. So you get this really beautiful relationship you can explore between how harmony and rhythm work and it's also, it's a really cool drum machine. It's just mm-hmm. a really different drum machine than any other machine that has come since and so that to me makes it really interesting.
1: And so it's got, um, I noticed, one or two knobs and the keys. What do mm. the, uh, the keys do and what do the knobs do?
3: The, the principle of how it makes sound is really fascinating you're effectively listening to light light is chopped up by two spinning discs. So it has a keyboard. And when you press the buttons on that keyboard that sends a beam of light through these discs, but the discs are spinning and they have holes. Uh, So one of the discs is for pitch and one of the discs is for tempo and holes uh, are made in those discs to provide different pitches and tempos. And as they're spinning, um, the light is only allowed to pass through, you know, when different holes on those discs align momentarily.
1: So what does the Rhythmicon look like and how does it work?
3: The director of today's proceedings, Paul Lemon, has a nice way to describe it. He said um, this instrument's basically the ultimate steampunk machine. (laughs) (laughs) So certainly um, because the instrument, it has a case over it, but when that case is off, you really get to see this amazing contraption of moving discs and large capacitors and transformers. And um, for people sort of who are into complex pieces of musical machinery it has a beauty to it absolutely
1: when the rhythmicon was first introduced in the 30s uh, one person described the sound as a cross between a grunt and a snort (laughs) someone else said it's like geese calls i personally (laughs) thought that it sounded a bit like uh falling rain or galloping horses how would Hmm. you describe it
2: i jokingly call it a fart machine
3: (laughs) (laughs) i've sometimes heard clucking chickens as well yesterday too yeah i really i felt like i heard um the, i don't know the, a lot of images sort of passing through my brain hearing it with the ensemble hearing these kind of conversations musically between it and depending on what range it's in because you're right it can sort of get low and especially when there's lots of harmonics in the low register at the same time it can be sort of i don't know this um this sort of pulsating low growl or low grunt um, but then it can also be you know very high and flitty and um, it's fascinating I really I find it fascinating when you just find certain pockets of tempo or pitch combinations and then it reveals something completely different than when you were just 10 bpm different and a slightly different pitch so it um I don't know it just sort of reveals all these different things at different moments that you don't expect
1: yeah so as I understand it it was a bit of serendipity that uh brought you guys and the Rhythmicon to us today here at Tufts uh you're corresponding with Paul Lehrman Uh, who teaches a course on electronic uh, music instrumentation, which I'm in, Origins of Electronic Music. And he told you that he was planning a performance with the Electronic Music Ensemble. What happened next?
3: Yeah, I was just at a party, and Paul couldn't attend because he was unwell, but he was was being handed around the room as a disembodied head on an iPad. (laughs) And when we talked... um, yeah, uh, he mentioned this performance coming up and said he was, you know, making a Max MSP um, sort of version of the Rhythmicon to play back the part from Rhythmicana. And I just kind of thought, I can't, I can't now mention this. I said, we've, we've just finished a Rhythmicon here in New York. Maybe you should use that. And he sort of paused and couldn't quite believe it for a second. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, it's just been a beautifully serendipitous
2: moment to be able to come and perform here first with it. That's
1: yes. what you were saying about timing. I
3: know. Right? I, just, I don't know. I think yeah. Yeah, these things just keep happening. So yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I've noticed a flow of theremin activity. Like, I'll get an email and then something else will happen, and a new discovery, and it, when it rains, it pours. Mm-hmm. I found out a lot with
3: the Ondelian work I've been doing because it took a number of years to find the first instrument that my technician, Stephen Masucci, and I worked on restoring. It was a number of years to do that project. So probably about five years of searching to find that first instrument, then a number of years of sort of waiting and patiently waiting until that project arrived at a a functional musical instrument. But then since then, um, it's like the world has been directing all these instruments to me, like somehow (laughs) responding to my realization that I should try to bring more of them back. And, you know, sort of mainly, I mean, it's it's Stephen who does all the work in that case. Um, But, you know, this sort of pact we've made to try to bring more of these instruments back to accessibility and full musical function. Um, I don't know, it's almost as if, yeah, the world's then directing them to us so that that becomes more possible.
1: It seems like there's been um, a great resurgence in older electronic music and analog synthesizers and even vinyl records today. Why do you think that is?
3: I think it's very related to um, how surprising it is, how subtle, but to us humans, very clearly perceptible differences there are when you just change a few Components in a medium um, or in a, in a particular instrument and those things can be really attractive there can be I don't know, you could say There's a soulful quality to things that is revealed and it's sometimes suggested that that um, I don't know that um, That a certain simulacrum or recreation is the same thing as the original and you just realize that's not the case when you're lucky enough to Sort of hear those subtle differences. So, you know, you get attached to different things some of it is sentimentality, but um, I don't know We're very sensitive creatures to all sorts of subtle differences of tone and, and expression, and so I think that's why old ideas sim- sometimes reveal themselves to be very new. Um, maybe especially because they're in a new context. You, you, it's like it brings into very clear relief how how different they are than what is now the you know the standard set of sounds or approaches, workflows, etc. But um, you don't have to go digging in too many other directions to find that there are lots of potential ideas that I think have very attractive timbral and compositional and performance possibilities um, that are just very different to that that people aren't exploring or have forgotten and so um, i think they're really worth exploring for that reason
1: you gotta look for inspiration wherever you can find it yeah yeah you have a great number of really cool instruments in front of you now and what experiences and how has having these instruments helped to create your current sound you
3: say? Uh, it's, a, it's a big influence on the new music I've been making. Yeah,
1: it's a big part of the
3: whole story, the record I've been working on. Um, and just personally, it's been um, just a lot of fun and really a wonderful blessing to be able to explore these instruments. Instruments I've heard and loved on other people's records and I've dreamed of playing for a long time. And then to start to realise some of those things is just, yeah, just really fun.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Just throughout this uh, this conversation, it's just seemed more and more like jurassic park but without the velociraptors attacking you at the end uh you're really bringing these back from the dead and putting them in a place where people can uh experience them
3: yeah i really hope to expand that aspect of it in future um some of it i guess is aligned with a creative commons idea of um as broadly as possible to allow access and sharing of not just physical objects but ideas and and you know, for new work to be made possible. But you need spaces and kind of philosophies to align and a, and a, I guess for a community and a culture to build up around that. So I hope that can develop.
1: You're both obviously very passionate about these instruments and uh, making sure that they don't just bite the dust. What is it about them that really draws you to bring them back and keep them alive?
3: I think it's important uh, to save parts of history like this because... Um, they just they they offer possibilities that we we may not we may not see again with the relentless march of of progress and technology, which of course in its own way offers as it as it always has having a lot of positive possibilities, but almost inevitably maybe a lot of um a lot of dark sides as well. This idea of forgotten futures is what attracts me. That idea that just because something is forgotten or perhaps seemed to be a failure, uh, doesn't mean that it can't offer something. Really interesting and exciting now um, partly because it's in a different context and that context is so different than than the one that it was originally created in Um, so I feel that very strongly with instruments like the Rhythmicon and the Ondulin that they offer musical possibilities and just I guess possibilities for human expression that aren't possible in some of the new digital instruments and, and virtual environments in which you can make electronic music so to me that's important just because it creates a greater richness of sound of composing possibilities and hence of human experience.
2: I think Wally summed that up uh, beautifully. I think for me personally, my fascination with theremin, it's interesting to get inside his head, but there are people who are attempting to make replica theremins. I made a replica of the 1929 theremin, um, and I had very limited information at the time. But now I have quite a lot more. I've extensively documented every detail of the cabinet and with the intent at some point to make that available so for me it's it's allowing these instruments to stay alive if they are still alive or to be able to bring them back
3: it relates to community i think is because um i think the spirit with which mike and i approach these projects is one of wanting to share as openly as possible Um, that doesn't mean that there mightn't be things that you sell at some point you know to cover costs or to make make other projects possible but generally I think the spirit is one of creative commons that is you know the culture is richer when the greatest possible access to all possible things are out there and we're living at a time when there's a lot of exciting things happen but they often very quickly get co-opted by large corporations and sometimes you know inspiring ideas and a sort of open access infrastructure remains through that but Often not. I mean, it's happened very quickly with the internet. I mean, from what might seem like extreme hippie like techno-utopian dreams a few decades ago, you very quickly have a very banal landscape that's just directed towards a very deadening rationalization of culture, which you know usually just relates to money and a lot of a lot of things I think just aren't very rich in in terms of potential human experience of life, all the things that give us joy and wonder in life. So I'd say for me broadly, without kind of trying to take too big a step on it for me it's just a spirit of sharing of community of trying to create some wonder in the world that often feels a little deadened by yeah by a uh, by a sort of hyper rationalization that technology and progress is taking us on
1: and i mean i think that's also what really is the draw about these analog instruments because i mean digital is great but there is that uh, whether or not it's the sound itself or just what we associate with it there is a bit of a sterile kind of controlled aspect there can be yeah you describe the rhythmicon as an early drum machine but it really is a very alien sound compared to anything that anyone's really heard nowadays you could even say that it's a a face that only a mother could love maybe it's only a, a sound that only a mother could love but you two seem to love it very much and so What have you found you can do to sort of make it a bit more accessible to maybe a more uh, pop-oriented audience?
3: Yeah, there is a complexity and, as you say, a sort of alien quality to it that could turn a lot of people off. So, you know, I'm a a huge fan of pop music. So I I suppose one of the challenges I've set for myself with the original music I'm making with instruments like this, very specifically the Rhythmicon, um, is... How can I make this in a way that feels really interesting and exciting and kind of accessible? And I think about that. um, I think about my favorite museum, this place in L.A. called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Um, If you're ever in an L.A. place, I highly recommend to visit. Just a wondrous experience.
2: Yeah, I've I've been and I love it. They have this beautiful
3: way of kind of describing a philosophy that guides them in their very unusual um, but intoxicatingly Um, strange curation of of just many different ideas and objects and that is um, to to guide the beginner along a chain of flowers as it were so i feel like maybe my my calling with the rhythmicon is to try to do that in pieces of music
1: mike buffington wally debaker also known as gotier thank you both very much for being here and good luck with your performance tonight
2: thank you very much thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the Andioline or the Theremin, or finding out how old German turntables and a French movie projector from the 1900s morphed into a Rhythmicon, check out our bonus episode with Gautier, released with this episode. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at that's tufts.edu. Tell Me More is produced by Katie mcleod Strollo, Stefan Hacker, Dave Nusher, and Anna Miller, who also edited this episode. The introduction was written by Julie Flaherty. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to Amanda Rowley and Paul Lerman. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music, and my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well.